Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are a visitor today, you've picked a doozy of a Sunday to come. Let me just throw that out there up front. Uh, We have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we've been in the Gospel of Mark for this whole year. Actually, we started it last fall. And we just finished up chapter 12 last week. So we're going to start chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse next week, where Jesus talks about the end of the age. And and we'll probably be in the Gospel of Mark through the summer, maybe early fall. And then we'll move on to another book. And that's our custom here, is to what we call preach expositionally through the Scriptures. And by that we mean that we want to expose ourselves, that's where that word expositionally comes, to the Word of God. And we want to expose the meaning. And so the The point of our sermon should be the point of the passage that we're working through, and that is our custom 95% of the time. But occasionally, like today, we take a break, and this this time we're taking a break out of our series through Mark to look at a particular issue, the gospel and homosexuality that is raging in our culture today. And just a few weeks ago, I'm sure all of you that have been paying attention to the news heard about where the Supreme Court uh, ruled, struck down the Defense of Marriage Act in California, really paving the way for the legalization of same-sex marriage in, in the nation. And so we thought that it would be good and wise for us to look at this issue, not from a political standpoint, and really not even from a cultural standpoint, but from a, a biblical Point of view, what the gospel has to say about homosexuality, and here's here's the deal. I, I, there may be some visitors here today. I'm sure there are. There may be some people that came just to hear this message, and I have no idea where some of you stand on this issue. Um, th- today, we're going to look at what what the Bible says about homosexuality, which maybe many of you agree with. And today is not the day to kind of go, yeah, yeah, you know. And if you disagree with what I'm going to say. You know, then I want you to be respectful to everybody else in this room. And so this isn't a pep rally by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I'm not here to feed, give red meat, you know, to the Christians. Here's my heart today, friends. This isn't a political issue or a cultural issue so much as it is an issue about what the gospel is and what sin is and who Jesus is. And this is about like people, like real people created in God's image. People that we love. People in this room that are wrestling with same-sex attraction or, or that are the sons or daughters or cousins or parents of people in this room. So, this isn't for the talking heads on Fox News or MSNBC. This is for the broken-hearted, Jesus-saturated, gospel-centered, Bible-infused people of God to come and wrap their hearts and minds around an issue that cuts to the very core of what it means to be human and who Jesus is. 
and what he offers humanity. So let's, uh, let's couch it in those terms. All right? So we're going to work through this today. And then on the last Wednesday night of July, our last Binweek Fellowship for July, we are going to do a Q&A because there's no possible way that we can handle all of the issues or answer all of the questions that you may have. This in large part is a 30,000 foot flyover of this issue. And on July 31st, Wednesday, Wayne and I will do a Q&A on that last fellowship, Wednesday night fellowship, um, answering the questions that you may have about this issue. So here's my plan today. We're going to be all over the Bible. We're going to be reading a lot of Scripture. might be helpful for you to just sort of look at the Scriptures up on the screen. We will post the notes uh, on the Internet um, as soon as we get the audio up early in the week. And it will have all the notes and all the Scriptures that are referred to and the points. And so if you are worried about keeping up, you can just sort of rest assured that you can find it on the Internet early this week. All right, four questions that I want to ask and answer today. And we'll just tick them off right now so that you know where we're going. One, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Two, what are the main arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality? What are the main arguments against what I believe is the biblical position of homosexuality? We're going to look at that. And three, what should our response be as Christians to this issue? And then four, what if you, what if you are struggling with same-sex attraction? What hope does Jesus and the gospel and his people hold out for you? Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. And listen, um, I know a lot of times I'll pray. Uh, I'm not praying just kind of as a little sort of little break to transition. To kind of, I never do that. But today in particular, pray for me. And pray for people in this room who are touched very personally by this issue that God would help us. That God would help us. And that even today, people might turn from darkness to light. Even today, that dead hearts might might be breathed life into by a holy and gracious and good God. So the people that came into this room not knowing Jesus or trapped in sin, whatever that sin may be, they might trust in Jesus today. Pray with me that that would happen. All right, let's do that. Lord, you're good to us. You're good to us. I'm just thinking about Will praying for the persecuted church and Wayne praying for Todd and Gwen across the world in a country that has billions of people, many who live on the street and they're there to, to adopt one little girl. It just am really just overwhelmed at your kindness to us. I pray that how you have blessed us as a people and how you have blessed us as a church would, would, would flow through our hands to others and it wouldn't cause us to be self-absorbed. I pray today that as we look at this this very difficult and personal issue that you would give us grace. Lord, our desire is not to be politically correct. Our desire is to lift up Jesus as the hope, the only hope for sinners. And our desire as a people is to make much of Jesus. So help us now. Help us think wisely deeply, boldly, and graciously 
about this. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Lots of scriptures here to answer this first question. A bit of a 30,000 foot flyover, but here's my plan. I'm going to start in the Old Testament and just kind of work through Old Testament, Jesus, and Paul. I'm not going to read everything that the Bible has to say about it, but just sort of an overview um, of what the scriptures say about homosexuality. First, I want you to know that clearly the Old Testament prohibits it. This is what the Bible starts off with in Genesis chapter 2, talking about creation of mankind and God's purposes for mankind. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see in the garden this first creation and God's purposes. Verse 18 of chapter 2, Then God said, It is not good that man should be alone after he's created the world and Adam. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. A couple nights ago I was reading a book, a story to my two younger children, Arabella and Abraham. And Abraham was peppering me with questions as to why each particular animal has a particular name. And he was not satisfied with this answer because Adam, that's what Adam named it. He wanted a little bit more of kind of, I guess, the, 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 the you know, linguistic development. I, I was, it was beyond me. Sorry, kid, you're going to have to just refer to Genesis 2. <laughs> he was not satisfied. Verse 20, The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Verse 24, very important verse. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so there we see, although that obviously that passage that I just read doesn't reference homosexuality, we see at the very beginning God's design for the created order and for for what it means to be human, male and female, and how uh, uh, the man is to be the husband and the woman is to be the wife, and they are created to glorify God and to be together. And these two become one flesh. Now, I don't have to, I don't think, draw too, too fine of a point on that or go much into graphic detail there, but even just the physical anatomy beyond just the spiritual union and complementary roles that God has given men and women, even just our physical anatomy echoes in nature and shows us clearly that men and women are meant to fit together as one flesh. So men and women are to complement each other in their roles. Men and women complement each other in their, even their anatomy and form a one flesh union. And marriage between one man and one woman is established in the second chapter, very early on in creation, as God's intention for human sexuality. So, right there, you see God's 
design for the created order of mankind. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3, and this is really important to understand not only this issue, but just life in general. Genesis chapter 3 happens, Adam and Eve fall, and everything, everything, not just our sexuality, but everything, our bodies, our relationships, everything was fractured and, and diseased and, and put out of joint in the fall of, of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And consequently, that fracture and that sin, which Romans 5 later in the New Testament says, brings death to all men and that death spread to all men, seeps its way into every component of what it means to be human. And the theologians, the the Reformation theologians, called it total depravity, that we are completely depraved. That doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but it does mean that every aspect of our being is completely tainted with sin and out of joint and renders us as mankind, as the children of Adam and Eve, completely unable to put ourselves back together again. It's kind of like food coloring. If you just had a glass of water and you dropped some food coloring in that clear glass of water, that food coloring, even in just a little drop, taints all of the cup of water. And that's what sin has done. It fractures everything. And then we see the rest of the Old Testament, God beginning. This didn't happen sort of outside of God's providence. Um, God was not surprised by this. In fact, we see the gospel very early on, and we, later on we read that the gospel was God's plan for redemption even before time began, where it says that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. So, so know that human sin... And rebellion didn't sneak up on God and the Trinity was up there saying, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Jesus, huddle, let's go. Can you go down there and fix this thing? God knew and planned for the rescue and redemption of mankind in eternity past. And then He begins to unfold His redemptive plan through the rest of the Old Testament. And we see God give mankind the law through Moses centuries later after Adam and Eve and in this law in this Old Testament law he is showing his people what is right he's showing his people what is wrong but ultimately he knows that they can never fully obey this law they will fail so really a big part of the law is not just to show what is right and what is wrong and how God is holy and we're not but to show people what is needed that they need God ultimately to rescue them and not the law because the law is showing people that ultimately they can't obey God in and of themselves because sin is so deep it's fractured every aspect of our being but he gives this law to prescribe a way of life to them and so in A section of the law in Leviticus, the middle part of Leviticus, is what is called the holiness code that deals with how God's people in the Old Testament should comport themselves sexually. And there's a whole bunch of lists of all the things that you can't do sexually. And one of them in Leviticus 18, verse 22, is it clearly says, You shall not lie with a male as a woman. It is an abomination. In Leviticus chapter 20, just a couple chapters over in verse 13, if a man lies with a male as a woman, 
Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. And their blood is upon them. You may ask, well, yeah, but what about... Also, I've read this, Brad, I've read chapters 18 and 20, and it also mentions that a husband and wife should not have uh, sexual relations when the woman is menstruating. And so isn't, isn't that prohibited too there? And what about now? I mean, okay, you're fast-forwarding in your mind to, okay, that's the Old Testament, that's kind of passed away. And all those dietary laws and everything, I mean, yeah, that's in the Old Testament. It doesn't apply now. Friends, you have to understand the purpose of the Old Testament and how it gives way to the New Testament law of Christ. So, so yes, in a sense, the Old Testament law, things like all of the dietary laws, uh, circumcision, the festivals, all 613 of these Old Testament laws, that Old Covenant has been fulfilled and it gives, it's been fulfilled in Jesus and His perfect life, so it's no longer binding on the Christian. And much of the, the ceremonial aspects of the law that talked about human cleanliness or sacrifice of animals, all of that has gone away. It's been fulfilled in Jesus, and it is no longer binding on the Christian in the New Testament, on us today. But the, the, the heart aspects of the Old Testament law, like the Ten Commandments, And things like God's prohibition against adultery and fornication and homosexuality is picked up again in the New Testament that we're going to read about in a second. So don't be duped by this this really poor argument that, oh, well, that's in the Old Testament. And you you couldn't eat shellfish. I mean, you can't eat bacon. I saw you at Waffle House the other day and you were chowing down on bacon. So you're just as guilty as the guy who's practicing this sexual sin, right? No, friends. All of the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Jesus and is no longer binding on the Christian. But the moral, the heart aspects of the Old Testament law are folded into what the New Testament calls the law of Christ. So in a sense, much of the Old Testament law is picked up again and we see it echoed in the New Testament And although there's no particular prohibition in the New Testament against bacon or wearing clothes with two types of thread, we do, as we'll see in a second, a prohibition against sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. So the Old Testament clearly prohibits it. Jesus prohibits it. Let's go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19 where we see Jesus hearkening back to the Scripture that we read in Genesis chapter 2. Now there's an argument, there's a line of argumentation, and we're going to go through these arguments in just a moment, where many of the people, many of the proponents of the compatibility of homosexuality and Christianity today would say that Jesus is silent on this issue. And I'm going to show you from the Scriptures that that is not a good argument, that's not the case. But let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is hearkening back to God's created order in Genesis chapter 2. And he's, he's engaging the Pharisees who are trying to trip him up in this question about marriage and divorce. In fact, we went through this issue when we looked at Mark. It's the, it's the same parallel passage in Mark as it is in Matthew 19. And Pharisees came up to him in verse 3 to test him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male 
and female, and said, Therefore a man shall not leave his father and mother, or a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so what Jesus is doing here is He's laying out a sexual ethic. He is saying that in the created order, God has made this complementary man and woman to go together in a one flesh union. And He's saying regarding adultery or the breaking of that marriage, that that should not happen because God's intention was that this man and woman should be in a sexual union and that there should be no third party in that. So they shouldn't break the marriage and marry another person, even in a heterosexual relationship. And implicit in that is that these two have been created in a complementary way to be one flesh. And then earlier on in Matthew chapter 15, we see Jesus prohibiting all sexual practice, not just homosexuality, but all sexual practice outside of marriage between one man and one woman. This is what he says in Matthew 15 verse 19. He's in this argument with the Pharisees about that it's not really what you put into your mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of your mouth as a result of what's in your heart that defiles a person. And that made them all mad because they were, they were wanting to be the bacon inspectors. Right? Who's eating bacon? And Jesus said, no, it's much deeper than that, boys. It's what's in your heart that comes out of a person. That's the problem. All the way back to Genesis 3, the problem is, is our hearts are fractured and sinful. And Jesus says this in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And that phrase there, where we get the English phrase sexual immorality from, the original language, the Greek word is porneia. Which every Greek dictionary for this word would define this as all sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. So this would include adultery, this would include fornication, it would include obviously homosexuality. So Jesus right there, is, is he's not just singling out homosexuality, he is he's giving this sexual ethic for mankind, saying that the only valid expression of human sexuality is the one flesh union between a man and a woman. So, so let's just establish something right now, okay? That, and then he also says in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not just our outward physical actions of sexual sin, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, it's even our hearts. Even if we lust after somebody that's not our spouse, we, we're, we're even guilty then. So let's just establish this, level the playing field. That means that everybody in this room that has passed the age of puberty has sinned sexually. And if you want to pick a bone on that, oh, come on now. Come on. You may not have sinned in the flesh, but all of us have wrestled with desires that even that, Jesus says, indicts us outside of the one flesh union between a man and a woman. Jesus isn't just zeroing in on homosexuality. He's talking about all human brokenness. So Jesus prohibits it. And then we see Paul prohibiting it. Let me kind of work backwards from Paul. I'm going to read a bunch of scripture here. And just, I think it's very evident and clear. And then we'll get into the 
to the arguments against what I believe the Bible says. So I'm going to work backwards. Let me read 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good. Paul's writing to this young pastor. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. By the way, friends, that's all of us before we come to Jesus. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Verse 10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So clearly he lists, along with many other sins, this homosexuality is clearly outside of God's um, prescription for human sexuality. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous, and that's all of us before we come to Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. I'm not sure exactly what a reviler is, but I'm pretty sure at some point along the way, I've been guilty of it. (laughs) Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul mentions it to Timothy. He mentions it to the Corinthians, but most prominently, he mentions it at the beginning of Romans. So let me read this lengthy passage and just notice the progression of the descent of mankind into rebellion and the consequences of our rebellion against God. And in Romans, here's the point of the first three chapters of Romans, is that Paul is building an argument that everybody is guilty. The Gentiles are guilty, even though they didn't have the written law of God on tablets like the Jews were especially privileged to have. They had the general law of God in creation, and so they should have been able to look to the stars and to the beauty of creation, and that should have caused them to acknowledge God, and it should have pushed them into knowing who God is. So they're guilty, and then he makes the argument in Romans chapter 2 that even the Jews are guilty because they've rejected God and Jesus. And then in Romans 3, he summarizes the argument and says, everybody's guilty. Everybody's on a level playing field. We are all friends. This is really important for you to understanding the Bible. There are no neutral people. There are only lost people and rescued people. All of us, all humanity, since Genesis 3, are on a sprint. Whether we are good little church kids who grew up in the South in Sunday school with flannel graph, we we know Moses and Elijah, and we stuck needles in them because the flannel doesn't grab anymore, and we know all the answers, all of us. Or whether we are terrorists who fly planes into buildings, all of us are born sinners on a sprint away from God. And we are completely dependent on Jesus to rescue us. By His work alone. And so, in Romans 1, let me read what Paul says about the descent of human rebellion and the consequences. These are not easy words, but important words. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity as a result, as a consequence of their rebellion. And though they in that is us, it's all humanity. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Friends, you don't read that scripture in a little cherry-picked devotional that you buy from the Christian bookstore very often. But that's part of God's inspired Scripture. And it is a description of the... It's a description of... It's spelling out what happened in Genesis 3. And part of the consequence, amongst many other, is men and women who practice sexual sin, specifically homosexual sin. So the Old Testament prohibits it. Jesus prohibits it. And Paul prohibits it. So, in summary to this question, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? The Bible is clear that homosexuality, and this is really important, this next part, along with All sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and wife is incompatible with the Christian life. Now friends, the issue is not whether or not we have sinned sexually, whether it be in a homosexual way or a heterosexual way. All of us have, except for the little ones in this room, and they're on their way to it. Friends, the issue is never 
whether or not we are sinners. The issue is whose side we are taking against our sin. Remember that beautiful quote from William Arnault, that British cat back in the 1800s with a long beard? I just love this guy. He's a British pastor commentator. I quote this often. I need to get a picture of him because he had a, he had a long beard. It was like a soup catcher. You know, he was just, just, just beards make you look more awesome. And November's coming, so we're all going to grow our beards back. Don't worry. But this is what William Arnaud said. He said that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not. The difference between a Christian is that they are taking God's side against their dreaded sin, whereas the non-Christian is taking sin's side against a dreaded God. And so, friend, the Bible is clear as it lists homosexuality and embeds it along with many other things that separate people from Christ. That unrepented of sin, whatever it may be, did you notice the talking bad to your parents? Did you, did you notice that? Just want to re-emphasize that for a couple people that live in my house that are in this room right now. <laughs> All sin. When it's not repented of, when we're not taking God's side and fighting our sin, is incompatible with the Christian life. That's what the Bible says. Can I offer just a pastoral word to some of you that may be listening to this by podcast or by a CD? I know we have some friends in town that listen, that may go to other churches. If you are part of a church that condones sin, homosexuality, or other sexual sin, and is reluctant to speak about it with clarity, then let me offer you two encouragements. One, you either need to leave that church because they are losing grip of the gospel. Friends, this is too serious. And I'm not just talking about homosexual, I'm talking about sin. If they're just easy on sin, if they never talk about sin, all they talk about is you having a great day then they've lost the gospel. So you either need to leave that church and go someplace where you can hear the gospel, or you need to stay there and you need to fight to recover the gospel. And don't just be a passive little community Christian that just sort of sits by and say, oh gosh, I disagree with that. Well, next week's coming. It might be better. Don't be that guy. Don't be that woman. Friends, the gospel is too important for you to be a self-absorbed community Christian that just likes to go somewhere where you get a little pat on the back. Don't do that. Don't do that, friends. Go to a church that holds up the glory and beauty and joy of Christ and in a broken-hearted, gracious way because of love calls people to repentance whatever sin may be. So what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Like all unrepented of sin, it's incompatible with the Christian life. Question two. What are the main arguments against what I've just said? Now I want to just kind of make this very accessible. There's lots of, you know, very complex arguments that biblical scholars have really debunked 
um, a lot of the, uh, really all of the, the more hermeneutical arguments or scriptural arguments that would be a proponent of, of, of homosexuality, but I just want to kind of be real street level here. There's just a few things. What are the main arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality? One, I think we just have to be aware that, that most of the world is not Christian and does not accept the authority of the Bible. Right? So most people don't believe the Bible. And so realize, don't be shocked when the world doesn't be, hold to the authority of the Bible. That their hearts are darkened. Their mind is unregenerated. They don't hold out the Bible as being true. And so we shouldn't be shocked when they don't believe what the Bible says. Another argument is that we see... We see uh, same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior even in nature and animals. I guess maybe there's some reports of, I don't know, dolphins or something or some animals that, you know, have this. Well, friends, back to Genesis 3. Not just, not just humanity was fractured, but all of creation. In fact, Romans 8 says that, that creation is longing for its, its redemption when the, the children of God are finally and fully redeemed. And so even creation itself is in this bondage to decay. And so if there's some dolphins that are, you know, in, in some in the South Pacific that they've studied or whatever the animal is, well, that doesn't mean that they're, they're, animals are broken too, right? I mean, and that's not a pattern for human behavior. In fact, um, you know, there's other animals where once the female species is impregnated by the male species, she eats her mate. I don't see anybody advocating that as a proponent for, praise God. I'd be dead four times over now. So that's, not a, that's just a ridiculous argument. A huge argument that a lot of people say is that Jesus did not address it. Well, they say that he didn't use specifically the word homosexuality like we see in the Old Testament or Paul. And so they're kind of trying to pit Jesus against Paul. Jesus is this much more gracious and loving kind of accepting figure. Uh, Well, a couple things on that. We need to be very careful about, true, Jesus never uses the word specifically homosexuality. But be careful about making arguments from silence. Jesus doesn't mention a whole host of things. He doesn't mention incest. He doesn't mention all sorts of other sins. But nobody's saying that Jesus advocates that. And in fact, I think we can, as I read from the scriptures in Matthew, Jesus was not silent on the issue of sexuality. He says that it's between a a one flesh union, between a man and a wife. And when he uses that word sexual immorality, he's including in it all sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. But friends, I think this, this argument doesn't hold water primarily because it's pitting Jesus against Paul. And they, they, they miss the point, people that make this argument, that the whole Bible was written by Jesus, right? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, Jesus... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit superintended every word in the Bible. Don't be one of these foolish people that you call yourself a red-letter Christian. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, is authored by our triune God. 
And so Paul's words are just as authoritative as Jesus' words, which are just as authoritative as Moses' words or David's words. It's all the Bible, and it's all authoritative. Another argument... And this is where I think we're, uh, 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 this is the major, the next couple, really the major argument against a biblical view of homosexuality is that homosexuality that was rejected in the Bible was merely the exploitive type, like a master maybe raping a slave or maybe a generational molestation. And the argument goes that, yes, Paul clearly mentions it because if we just, a plain reading of the Scripture, Leviticus, and picked up again in Romans and First Timothy and First Corinthians, Paul clearly prohibits it. But they're saying that what Paul is speaking about there is only the type of homosexuality that's exploitive. You know, like, like against the will of the person who's being raped. But that also has been thoroughly debunked. There is much evidence from antiquity in biblical times, in pottery, in artwork, in literature, that all reference the existence of consensual homosexual relationships even during that time. And then we read, we read it in Romans chapter 1, verse 27. It says that God gave these men up because they were consumed with passion for one another. That argument simply does not hold weight. And then secondly, the argument is, is that the homosexuality that's mentioned in the Bible by Paul, they reject it because it was a homosexuality that was not based on orientation. And so just follow me here. And excuse me for getting so detailed. But what they're saying is, and just even just say this argument out loud, and I think you'll just realize it. Just it's, it's really actually kind of silly. They're saying that the homosexual uh, acts that Paul is prohibiting are homosexual behavior by heterosexuals, not people like we know. If, so that the Bible was ignorant to the fact that people would have a sort of predisposition or orientation to homosexuality later on in the centuries. And so it's arguing that it was just sort of this crazy sexual depraved culture where these these heterosexuals maybe in Rome or some totally debauched society are just sort of occasionally committing homosexual acts but they're not truly by orientation homosexuals. Well, by definition, I think homosexuality is homosexual acts. And we see in even in in why I think this argument just does not hold water is because we see in Paul's description in Romans where men gave themselves up, they traded in their created order. There's so much parallel between Romans 1 and Genesis 1 that it shows that, that really what's happening is there's a corruption of God's created order. Humans were made to have dominion over animals, not worship them. And men were made to be united with women, not men and vice versa. And then, friends, regarding this idea of, of whether or not we are predisposed, it's a huge argument, are people predisposed to same-sex attraction? Are people born homosexuals? I think that's a debate that rages. Friends, I think it's actually kind of a moot point. All of us are born oriented to sin. Every person in this room is born with ungodly affections. And some, maybe their bent is 
towards same-sex attraction and others are towards heterosexual debauchery or towards idolatry or towards thievery or towards whatever it is. Friends, that doesn't excuse mankind. We are all oriented to sin and I think we need to be very careful as Christians to not couch. Listen to me. Do not couch or classify people that wrestle with homosexual attraction as, oh, well, they were, you know, they had a bad father. They were abused or molested. Certainly that may be the case for some. Friends, I know people that are wrestling with same-sex attraction. They're taking God's side against their sin or not. Or maybe they're giving themselves over. They They came from wonderful homes. Friends, the nature of human sin is so much more complex than that. You can't just put, oh, this happened. Oh, well, that happened. You know what happened, friends? Genesis 3 happened. And when Genesis 3 happened, it fractured everything. Do you, ha- do, do you have a biblical view of sin? Do you take it that serious? And do you realize that although you may not be predisposed to this or that or whatever it may be, that you, all of us, are oriented towards rebellion against God. And we are completely unable to save ourselves and need Jesus. So those are the main arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality, which, let me just read it, I think those arguments are faulty. I think the Bible is clear. So what should our response be as Christians? I know it's been weighty. I'm landing this plane now. Putting the wheels down. Don't unbuckle yet though. Can't do that until we hit the ground. We're landing this thing here. What should our response be as Christians? Friends, I think first of all, we must understand the nature of sin and salvation and Christ-like love. We must understand that all sin separates. Notice that when Paul mentions it, the issue is never just homosexuality, but it's in a greater context of sin. And the issue is not whether we are sinners or not. The issue is whether or not we are repenting. So in love, we as Christians must have a biblical understanding of sin because I think we... we we, we, we absolutely undercut ourselves when we make this a political issue and, and, and siphon off homosexuality as some sort of special category of sin. Are the consequences of it deep? Yes. In fact, all sexual sin, is, is the consequences of it are deeper than other types of sin. Listen, when I was a 10-year-old kid, I had a business... I was a little entrepreneur and my business was stealing the metal air caps off of nice cars. And I don't know if you know this, but the little air spigot on a car tire fits the air spigot on a bike tire. And we rode our bikes to school in El Central California to Desert Gardens Elementary. And it was just a thing back in the late 70s and early 80s to have metal air caps on your bike. And I saw a business opportunity. And so I went around to all of the cars boys, 
don't follow this as an example. I went around to all of the cars in my neighborhood and I would steal the metal air caps off of the nice cars. In fact, Dick Vermeil, who was the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, was a childhood friend of my next door neighbor. And I got wind that Dick Vermeil was coming over to have dinner with my neighbors. And certainly Dick Vermeil would have a nice ride. And Dick Vermeil came over and I stole the metal air caps off of Dick Vermeil's car and sold them the next day at Desert Gardens Elementary in El Central California and I marked it up because it was a Super Bowl coach. But friends, listen to me. I'm being silly here, but listen to me. I've sinned in many other ways. And I have sinned sexually in deep and shameful ways. (laughs) And you know what? I've never woke up. I've never been wrecked with guilt over stealing metal air caps. When I came to Christ... You know, I kind of clearly, no, the Lord forgave me for that. Let's move on. I'm not going to do that again. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Friends, my sexual sin has wreaked much more difficult consequences in my life. And so although we don't siphon off homosexuality as some sort of special category of sin, no, friends, that, that sexual sin in general does cut deeper because it's a frontal assault on God's created order. And so know that we have to understand the nature of sin and the nature of salvation that the gospel is mighty to save, right? And so Jesus is more powerful than human sin. So so the answer, let's not overcomplicate this. The answer for the person struggling with same-sex attraction is Jesus. The answer for the person struggling with heterosexual attraction outside of marriage is Jesus. The answer for gay people is Jesus. The answer for straight people is Jesus. The answer for tall people is Jesus. The answer for short people is Jesus. The answer for white people is Jesus. The answer for black people is Jesus. For Mexican people, Jesus. For Asian people, Jesus. For people from California is Jesus. For Alabama fans, it's Jesus. For Auburn fans, it's Jesus. For the businessman who steps over people to get up the corporate ladder and lives a self-absorbed life, it's Jesus. For the 18-year-old who's downloading porn, it's Jesus. For the husband who's flirting with his secretary and is moving towards adultery, for the man who's trapped in extramarital affair, it's Jesus. For the heartsick wife who is giving herself away to the emotional pornography of romance novels and silly vampire movies, it's Jesus. For people with cancer, it's Jesus. For people that have never heard the gospel in New Delhi, India, it's Jesus. For the rich guy in Green Island Hills, it's Jesus. For the poor person in Booker T. Washington apartments, it's Jesus. For the middle class cat, it's Jesus. For the soldier at Fort Benning, it's Jesus, friends. Don't overcomplicate it. People are sinners, and the only hope for sinners is Jesus. So our response should be understanding the gospel. And do not fall into this trap where people say, Ah, well, you know, none of us are perfect. 
not hurting anyone, right? It's not hurting anyone. I mean, come on, what they do in their... Ba- <laughs> Friends, if we buy into that argument, we, we, we display that we don't truly understand sin. Because what is the consequences of sin? Wayne read it this morning from our catechism. Separation, unrepented of sin, whatever it may be, will send a person eternally separated from Christ forever. But you see, we're comfortable Americans, so we don't think about eternity, right? So we read these silly little books about your best life now, all the while not realizing the reality of what sin will do. And so when we, when we buy into that argument, well, it's not hurting anybody, friends, to be separated from God, there's nothing more hurtful than that. Imagine this. Imagine if two people live next door to each other, and one guy was asleep... And he's got an iron on, and his iron catches on fire, and his house is catching on fire. And the other guy did something stupid and spilled some grease, and his, catch, his kitchen's catching on fire. He goes outside, he's getting a hose to, 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 to put out the fire in his house. He looks over to his neighbor, and he sees his neighbor's house is on fire, and he says, Oh gosh, well I did something stupid to catch my house on fire. I don't want to be hypocritical, so I'm just going to let him stay asleep while he burns. Friends, there's nothing loving about that. Do you see sin like that? Friends, of course we're broken hearted and we're gracious and, and, and we go with all sorts of humility because we know that at the end of the day we too are just rebels and the only difference between us and the world is we've been pardoned by a gracious and sovereign God. And so yes, our hearts are broken, but friends, it is not loving to not lift up the gospel and and be clear about what sin is. Also, we should repent and recapture a biblical view of marriage and sex. Uh, Friends, being married and having sex, even within marriage, is not the epitome of what it means to be human. And I think one of the reasons that this has become such a cultural fight is because we have defined marriage as the end of happiness. And so people that are gay want that sort of recognition too, that validation for, for marriage. And because we are so self-absorbed in our views of marriage and, and, and because we are so sex-obsessed in our culture and because we wink our eyes at heterosexual sexual sin, we undercut our ability to be clear about what it means to be human. So young Christian girl, your value is not based on whether or not you can attract a guy or look like the little skinny cover of a magazine. That's not who you are. And young man, your masculinity is not based on whether you can shoot a deer or bench press 300 pounds or bed a bunch of girls. You see, you see how we in the church have sort of, we give way to that. And we undercut our ability to speak about what true humanity is. Jesus was the most human, the most satisfied, and the most joyful person that ever lived. And He was never married, and He never had sex. And so part of our battle against sin is to understand what it means to be human. And then, of course, we must treat all people with dignity and respect and love by pointing them to Jesus. We should reject coarse humor. We should reject 
foolish speak. We should redeem our speech towards people that are wrestling or given over to same-sex attraction. And if we have a loved one or a friend who is a homosexual, we should draw ourselves closer to them. We should love them but be clear about the gospel and sin. There is a way to love and not condone. So I can anticipate somebody mentioning, hey, I have a child that is an adult child that is homosexual and they have a partner. Should I let them come over for dinner? Yes. Yes. And this is the way it would shake out in my house. Let's just say I, I have a, one daughter, you know, with three boys. If my daughter grew up, and God forbid, she uh, got into a relationship with a man and was living with him. Ooh, I don't even, uh, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> that would break my heart and it would be fearful for her soul and me and her mother would want to draw her close that we can communicate the gospel to her and if she came over with her boyfriend who I knew that she was engaged in sin with I'd have them over for dinner because I'd want to be close to them and I'd want to preach the gospel to them in loving and kind ways and if they were spending the weekend with us you go to that bedroom and you go to that bedroom and I'm going to set up concert wire and a machine gun nest <laughs> that is going to be tripped by a trip wire so that if that punk even comes out of his room in the middle of the night, he's getting cut down. <laughs> but I'm going to love. We, we love, right? We love. There's a way to love without condoning. And... <laughs> I know with a crowd this size there are people in that situation in this room. And know that it's not a point of shame or failure on your part, friends. Sin is so much more complicated than that. If you find yourself in that situation with a loved one or a child, friends, don't waste time blaming yourself. The psalmist says, if we were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? Right? I mean, come on. Know that your pastor in this church wants to come around you and love you and support you and encourage you and help equip you in any way to engage that situation in your family. And I end with this question. Finally, what if you are struggling with same-sex attraction? First, I want you to know that this is a safe place. Right? If you are wrestling with it or even if you're engaged in homosexual sin... You are not a freak or a weirdo. You're a fallen human being like the rest of us. And the pastors here want to help you and come alongside you in your fight against sin. And even if you disagree with what I'm saying or still have theological questions about this, 
I'm not supposing that one standalone sermon is going to clear up every question that you have, but we are eager to meet with you and care for you as best as we can as under-shepherds of Jesus. This is a safe place. And friends know that our heart as pastors is a desire to see Crosspoint to be a place of refuge and gospel truth and salvation for people, all manner of people, including people wrestling with same-sex attraction. But I would say to you, friend, that you, like every other sinner with broken desires and orientation, must take God's side against your sin. And only in Christ is this possible. Like every other person, you are commanded to kill your flesh. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, therefore, the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's where William Arnault gets that quote from, that truth. That we are commanded as pardoned rebels who all of us still deal with sin is to take God's side against our sin and our flesh. Grace, friends, is not a thing. It's a person. It's Jesus. And He does more than just forgive us of our sin. He restores us and He gives us His strength so that we can say no to sin and yes to true joy and satisfaction. So friends, know that as difficult as the temptation is, whatever it is in your life, that is not stronger than Jesus. If you are struggling to take God's side against your sin of same-sex attraction. No, no, you're not a freak. In fact, if you wrestle with same-sex attraction and you are taking God's side against your sin, friends, I, I would venture to say that you're actually the strongest among us. That you, you have to fight a battle that the heterosexual doesn't have to fight because they have at least in this temporary passing life an eventual potential righteous outlet for the expression of their desires and you may not experience that in this life and so for the for the for the Christian that is wrestling against that and living a celibate lifestyle oh friends i i actually think that they may be the strongest among us I have such respect for you if that's the fight you are engaged in. And with you, I lament the double standard in the church that passes over and winks at heterosexual sin and makes your struggle more taboo. And I certainly agree that there is much hypocrisy in Christian circles when it comes to this. But can I encourage you brother or sister that is struggling don't waste your time and energy being angry at the hypocrisy of the church instead reserve your anger for your fight against sin and reserve your energy for the pursuit of true satisfaction which only comes in Christ yes you may wrestle with this for the rest of your life like virtually every 
heterosexual in this room will have to wrestle with their sexual sin for the rest of their lives. And yes, you don't have a righteous expression of your desire in this temporary life. But oh, friends, friends, hear me. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And there's going to come a day when you'll look in the rearview mirror and you'll see these 70 or 80 or 90 years in that struggle, man, and you'll, you'll make it and you'll be tattered and bruised and worn out in your struggle against sin. And you'll stand face to face with Jesus and it will all, it will, it will all be worth it, friend. It will all be worth it. This life is not all there is to it. And everybody in this room needs to hear that. Listen, our struggle against sin one day, friends, will be worth it. If we take God's side against sin, that's why we need each other, friends. That's why this is such a huge issue because we need each other, man. How can we fight this fight alone, man? I need your help. You need my help. And we all need to help each other get to that day when we stand before Jesus. Because on that day, friends, there will be an unending, an unending increase of joy. Oh, Jesus will be so satisfying and pleasure and intimacy that is just shadowed in this life and marriage and sex will give way to an indescribable, surprising and infinite joy. Oh, that day will be worth it, friend. That day will be worth it if you never get to express what you desire on this or that day will be worth it friends long for that day friend long for that day and know that there's a a busted up group of pardoned rebels here that wants to love you and together get to that day with you amen let's pray and ask the Lord to help us thank you for your patience Lord, the, the lie is the same today as it was in the garden. We are tempted to believe that you are not trustworthy and that you are not satisfying. Lord, would you lift our gaze? above our sin above these 90 years that you may grant us and would you lift our eyes to Jesus for the Christians in this room would we be sobered by what the Bible has to say about all sin And would we live a life of continual repentance and joy? And would you would you solidify our understanding of the gospel and eternity? And would it produce in us a broken hearted love filled 
Jesus-saturated compulsion to to be a witness to a world that's lost in sin. Would you snap us out of our uh, really just how we're lulled to sleep by life in America? For my friends in this room who have loved ones, maybe a son or a daughter or a parent or a cousin or a dear friend that's wrestling with same-sex attraction. Lord, would you would you encourage and envelop and would you comfort and would you would you give that person hope and wisdom as to how to love their dear one well. And Lord, for my friends in this room who are wrestling with same-sex attraction, oh, friends, would you help them and all of us take God's side against their sin? And would we all long for that day when the all-satisfying ever-increasing presence of Jesus in His glory is once and finally and fully realized. Would that day be like a magnet that draws us to that day? And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's never trusted in Jesus, Lord, today, would they look to You? Would they look to You They look to the beautiful, satisfying Jesus who laid down His perfect life for our sin-soaked life, absorbed the punishment, extinguished it, and turned it into favor and righteousness for all those that would repent and trust and believe that He died and rose again in victory over all sin. Lord, would that person look to Jesus even now? Lord, I pray that we would now respond and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, let's all stand together.